welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, I'm talking to Sir David Carter and Laura McInerney about their new book, Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail, But Most Don't. Now, David and Laura gave me a sneak peek of the book. It is actually published on Monday the 17th of August, but you can pre-order your copy now and hopefully this podcast will will whet your appetite. It's a very comprehensive guide drawing on David's experience as head teacher, CEO, regional schools commissioner and national schools commissioner. And in this episode, we have a lively conversation about the development of the Academy Trust movement and what might happen in the future. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did recording it. Before we begin, as ever, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce two friends of the podcast, Sir David Carter. Hello, David. Good afternoon, Caroline. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And Laura McInerney. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And we're going to be talking about your new book, Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Most Don't. Now, I've had a sneak preview of the book and I'd recommend it as an all-you-need-to-know all guide, really, uh, to trust leadership. Very, very useful and, and practical. Lots of, of kind of checklists right down to the, the questions to ask at, at various points to, to, to various people. Uh, so we're going to have a bit of a discussion uh, about the book and, and some of the themes in it. How did the idea to work together come about? Um, well, I'm one of the first thing I'd want to say really is that I don't think the book would have come about if I hadn't had the opportunity to work with Laura. Um, I think that the, the, the terrifying prospect of being disciplined enough to sit down and write a book from scratch was something I would have found incredibly daunting. Um, and I think it was just uh, Laura, somebody I have a huge amount of respect for. We we met many times in my RSC and NSE days. Um, uh, I think we, we agree on lots of things and probably disagree on others. And that's a really good mix for working together, I think. Yeah, and from my perspective, I think the amazing thing about David's journey so far is there's nobody else who's done what he's done. So if you think about it, you know, going from headship, federation headship, leading an academy trust, being a regional schools commissioner and being a national schools commissioner, so far that's a completely unique path, but it's probably something that other people will do in the future. And I was very aware that there wasn't yet a good a really solid guide that said, here's what academy trusts are. This is what they're doing on a national scale. And this is what the best leaders are doing. And if David didn't write it, somebody else was going to write it. And I thought that the, the list of options were probably going to be less knowledgeable than him because they'd only have worked in one trust or maybe two, whereas he's seen lots and lots of them. So, yeah, I, I do find writing these kind of books really difficult. But David made it so much easier um, by doing present, did basically presentations every every couple of weeks, and then we wrote them up, put them together, and hopefully it'll be something really useful for people. Great stuff, a dream team there. So starting with the the kind of the, the obvious question, um, sort of implied in the title, why why do some academy trusts fail? I don't think there's one particular answer to that, but I think there are some really common themes that come out of it. So I think there are probably three things I would say come out of um, the ones that I'm aware of and the ones that I was looking at most closely when I was uh, NSC. The first one will, uh, will come across as sounding just a little bit superficial, but it's a real issue, which is nobody gave enough time and thought to why this trust needs to exist. It kind of just came about because it did. Um, there was a really good school or there was a really good leader and they thought let's create a multi-academy trust and it'll be straightforward and we'll just share some thinking and it'll be fun and of course the moment you formalize the structure in the way that multi-academy trusts are to be, to be charities educational charities you're on a very different level than that than that kind of premise so that was one thing the second one which i think is true of most of the ones i've seen 
um, go badly wrong is if governance is just too weak um, and there is no sense of holding people to account and the systems and the structures that you need in a charity are just missing. Um, no, so even, even where the moral purpose is incredible and, and people are saying all the right things, they don't have the governance and systems in place that enables that moral purpose to enact change upon kids' lives. And then a third one really is, um, which is one which you talk quite a lot about in the book, which is the fact that there are lots of multi-academy trusts, uh, certainly in the early days, that were still really standalone schools that happened to be in this thing called the trust and they behave like standalone schools. And so it was really difficult to build a sense of this being one organization or what the benefit was to people of being part of this trust. Um, the school had done behaving in many ways that they had done prior towards joining, um, all wrapped up in the idea of, you know, we must give school leaders their, their autonomy. And there's a, there's a really good bit in, in the book, which Laura helped me with, because um, this was very much in her territory, which is, you know, Mike, Michael Gove made a really big play in the post-2010 era of saying, the autonomy of leaders is what we want. Um, and lots and lots of trust rode on the back of that and said, right, okay, well, that's the promise that we'll make to you. Come and join us and nothing will happen. Nothing will change. Um, and for some schools, that was fine. But for the vast majority, that was the last thing they needed. They really did need someone to grip them and do something really purposeful with them. So I think those quite high-level things are, are, are things I saw kind of weaving in and out some of the failures that I saw. Yeah, and I think what comes across very clearly in, in the book is the, the difference if you can unlock the power of this entity of the trust and schools stop behaving like individual schools and, and start to become part of it. And that's obviously something that, that you've seen uh, manifest itself differently in, in lots of different examples. But I think um, for somebody trying to, uh, as you said, Laura, trying to understand what is a trust, that, that comes across very, very powerfully in what you've written. There's also something else which doing the book taught me, and this is credit to David's patience for about five years, because I've always rolled my eyes when anyone talks about school collaboration. And I'm always a bit like, what does that even mean? It sort of sounds like everyone's sitting in a, in a room and having some biscuits and chatting about what they're going to do, but nothing really gets done. There's a bit in the book which talks about the idea that in terms of financial companies, investors give money over in order that a business can sort of go on and fly and then they get a financial return in the future. David made the analogy that with a academy trust, you're essentially asking people to give you their children and they will only do that and in good faith support you as school leaders, teachers, head teachers, if they feel like there's some general benefit, both at the school, but also the academy trust. Otherwise, you're asking them to put faith in a faceless entity that isn't really doing anything. And so when we talk about collaboration, it's not just sitting around having a chat about nice things we can do together. It's actually talking about if we all work together, what is the greater payoff or benefit? Not even just to like big society and visions of education, which is lovely, but literally what's the payoff to Mrs. Brown, who's got two kids in year eight and she gets them up every morning and she makes sure they're in their uniform and she makes sure they're at school and she wants to help you out. Why will she care that this Academy Trust is doing anything? And the book gives lots of examples, I think, of how you can make sure that Mrs. Brown knows what collaboration and the benefit of the trusts is. Yeah, and I think that um, the, the, the point about really seeing the, the whole staff as a group together and, and, and realising the potential of that rather than looking at your staff in that very separate school kind of way and obviously the journey that you have to take the people involved in that on so that they understand that they are part of the trust and not not just part of the school um and and that must be something that um you know practically can be done be done well or there are there are a lot of of, of challenges about how you how you communicate that uh to people david What's but that example is a really good one because the it, it's kind of the most visible um, the visible elements of, of what we just talked about, whether, you know, is it working or not? Because the, I really buy into this idea that, you know, as a, as a, as a CEO of Cabot when I was there and the work I've done since, you know, you're, you're sitting on top of a structure which employs hundreds and hundreds of people. And if you see those hundreds and hundreds of people as being separate entities that don't relate to each other, 
you're never going to get the sum of the parts fit to work. And so uh, we describe it in the book about the faculty of education. And, and I use the example of, you know, everybody that's employed in the trust to teach English, whether it's to early years or to A-level kids, they're part of the faculty of education who happen to be split into different sites, but they're still one team. Um, and I think, you know, there's a number of things in the book which I think are will be part of what the, the, the next iteration of Mac 2.0 will be in the next five years. But that, for me, will be the number one. Because if you see, if you if you continue to see your English teams, if I stick with that analogy for a minute, as being groups of people who go to different schools every day, then the notion of how they share and how they co-construct curriculum, how they joint moderate, how they how they are prepared and really excited about moving between schools is lost because actually their their emotional attachment is to the building that they go to every day. And, and I'm not advocating that we ever change that. I'm just saying I think there's a bit of attachment attachment around the trust that employs you as well. And I think those those boards and those CEOs and those school leaders who really buy into that are accelerating their progress around this notion of building a single organisation. And, I mean, thinking about um, the interrelationship there of, of, of parents and the, the wider community um, and, and, and public and their perceptions of, of trust and the trust movement, David, when we spoke previously on the podcast, we talked a bit about the the scepticism um, that exists about about trusts, and mm. and obviously over the years we've seen reported the detail of these these high profile, let's call them failures. Um, you know, do do you think that there as a sector there's been enough learnt from from these failures? I mean, has there been too much um, focus focus on 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 some of them, and that's maybe prevented in, innovation? What are, what are both of your thoughts on that? The, um, I think it's really hard to say whether the sector has learned from those failures. I mean, I, I, I always used to feel that, that when we were dealing with some of the really high-profile ones, which, which, which were right to be called out because both their practice and their behaviour was completely unacceptable. And I, I did see myself as having a role which was about partly protecting some of the good guys because if you've got 1% of the trusts really, really messing it up, the risk is that everybody thinks everybody's messing it up, and that wasn't the case. So it was absolutely right and proper to, to do that. Um, but the lessons around those really high-profile ones were often about the behaviours of individual or groups of people rather than systemic stuff. And I think I think where parents is a concern, I, I mean, I, we talk a lot about this in the book, and, I'm, and I, I feel really strongly about this, that there are two schools of thought, which I think we might have mentioned on the podcast before, which is some people take the view that parents don't need to know anything about the trust because their, their, their relationship is with the school. And I take the opposite view, which is they absolutely do need to know about the trust because this group of people um, who probably don't even live in their community, in a base maybe not even in their town or city, um, have, have a responsibility to educate their children and the, and the values and the beliefs and how they improve schools does have a direct impact upon their kids. And the point that we've made before is that the time to start communicating with parents is when they think that they either don't know much about you or they think you're okay. Mm. Don't start telling them how good you are when it's all gone wrong, as one or two did, because no one's going to believe you and it's not credible. So so the, the three things which I still think are an issue in the trust sector, which, which I hope we've tackled quite directly in the book, is one is... I, I do worry about the language that we sometimes use. I mean, you know, we, we took, Laura and I talked a lot about that notion of the math dividend from the, the business analogy, but we also take a, lot, a bit of care, I think, to explain what we mean by that, and which is the benefit of being in this trust and the sum of the parts. But sometimes the language um, puts a barrier up between people whose expectation is of what education should be and what business feels like. That's number one. The second one is still there's still a lot of opaqueness in the system about how these things work. Um, you know, I, I argued for all the time I was at the DFE that the head teacher board minutes, for example, the meetings were, were just useless. We should not. We, it would be do us more favors not to publish anything than what we did. And I, I don't. I, I suspect that hasn't moved on very much. But what that did was it, it meant that some of the really important conversations that were sensible and professional never got aired around that. And then I suppose the third one is that, that parents feel left out of this, um, and and if they don't feel that there is a a name and a face that they can relate to so that when something goes wrong, they're able to talk to somebody about that, then then I think we have a real problem with that. So um, I, again, talking about where do we go next in the next four or five years, um, we've got a big chunk in there in the book about how they can, how trust can relate to parents and a really interesting case study from 
tap stop learning trust based in Newham about how they produce an annual report to parents, which is really simple, using really clever, clever imagery, but simple language that every parent would understand about education. Uh, and I just wish every trust in the country did that because I think that would move us forward uh, really quickly. So, I mean, to go back to the point about learning from failures, the question for me is always who gets to learn from these failures? And a big reason to do this book is that David was in a position where he he knows what's happened in many of these cases. And he's worked with the close stakeholders, the senior leaders, the senior civil servants. And I've no doubt that lessons are being learned in certain places within the system. But as David said, that opaqueness has often stopped the learning from being spread around. And I'm sure it was done with the greatest of intentions, which is that there was a need to almost protect the academy brand when people were very angry about these failures. But I think that best will and that good intention led to many, many other people who are leading academy trusts not having the first clue about what was going wrong. And so those lessons that David just communicated around speaking with parents, when you need to get on the front foot, how you set up your governance, how were you supposed to know that if you're an academy trust leader of the 400th academy trust that had been created and no one was sharing about what had failed? And instead people go, well, why don't we focus on what went well? Let's look at all the positive case studies. But the problem is, first of all, that can feel far too far away when you're setting up an academy trust. It's, it's a bit like going and looking at the best teacher in the English department. You get there as an NQT and you think, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. What I just need to do is get the kids sat down and not completely screw this up. And that's why the book really is, a, is, is accepting that there are some failures, why some academy trusts fail, but most don't. Just because we learn from the one or two failures, that doesn't mean we're focusing on it or throwing anything else under the bus. And, you know, we often talk about this kind of constant challenge of people trying to, you know, build an organisation and run it at the same time. And as you say, there's this, you know, sometimes when case studies are presented of something that is established and has all of these processes and is very large, um, it does feel quite remote from you know, a couple of schools who are getting together to see where, you know, see where it takes them kind of thing. I think you're right. It can be really instructive to to, to start from where, where, how can everybody access this? And what I like is there are so many kind of questions that, that, that can be asked at any point um, of, of a leadership or of a board um, that, that, that and, you know, don't rely on you being a certain size. And it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I used to work at, at the Charity Commission and there are so many parallels with the charity sector and kind of keeping public trust and confidence in the institution as well as the individual institutions and look, you know, forensically looking at what went wrong. And you know, serious case re you know, reviews were produced in those cases and, and sometimes more information was shared or not. But, you know, it was always kind of trying to weigh up. If we tell people exactly what went wrong here, are we damaging the brand of charity as a whole? Maybe, but actually people need to know what's, what's been done in kind of genuine error by people who didn't know any better, who were volunteering or unaware of the, the legal ramifications or what was, what was people doing things that they shouldn't have been doing and they know they shouldn't have been doing them. Um, so yeah, it is, it is, it is very difficult to think about how, how best to communicate, uh, that. And, you know, I have to look at you, Laura, when I say kind of the media, uh, maybe hasn't, hasn't helped in the, in the reporting of, of, of trust. A hundred percent. But that was, so the three questions for me about lessons from failure are mm. who is doing the learning? I think it was only ever senior people. What did they learn? And I think sometimes we looked at very big splashy failures which as David said before were often quite specific and about individual personalities some of the more interesting ones particularly within free schools have been a number of free schools that simply got taken over within a couple of years and have continued to flourish there were just a number of, of reasons why they didn't work often because they had a weird year group intake so they went mm -hmm. from say year four to year you know year 10 or something odd about them and it just mm. didn't quite work we've never really learned those lessons because they're not very exciting and that's because the third thing is who tells those stories who talks about the failures and if the government don't do it or the trust leaders themselves don't do it the media steps in mm. and when you've only got 
600 words and you've got to try and put a picture next to it that encapsulates accountability and write a headline in 11 letters with two gaps at a certain point, then I'm afraid you're not going to get the nuanced picture. And hopefully this book goes some way to redress that balance. I, I, I agree with that. I think the other bit I'd, I'd add to it is that the, the lessons learned bit, the people in the sector are, are always, I think, um, in, in a position where they go, well, that would never, ne that will never happen to us because we would never behave like that. But actually, some of the failures were not, were not, they weren't big issues. They were quite simple things that multiplied over time. Um, and, I, and I think what we've tried to do here is, I think the, the, the book I didn't want to write was a book of case studies on best practice because I just think that's, that's pretty useless because. I'm not sure how you how you work on the basis of what's best practice in my trust is going to be the best practice in yours. So I think it had to be a, a, a book that that was realistic about how things happen. And, and fundamentally, we learn more from describing what went wrong. Um, and whilst it, that, you know, it would have been inappropriate to uh, talk about individual projects, all of the learning that I took from the DFE is in the advice that we offer to, to trust about how they get this right. So I think the lessons learned element of that is is really important. The, the other bit, which you didn't ask this question, but it was kind of in, in the, the comments that you just made, which is about growth. And I think growth is one of the real problems that we have, because I think there are lots and lots of trusts who see growth as their salvation. Um, and, and I think they, they should be content to be the best trust of five or six schools in their region, rather than a mediocre one of 15 or 16, which is what often happens, because they take on all of these schools, they get the balance of strong and weak schools slightly out of kilter but they don't build the infrastructure to cope with that and so talking about um, you know the, the detail with which we go into school improvement the detail with which we talk about what's it like to be employed by you the detail we talk about the governance model is is really aiming to to equip trusts to make that decision better the decision might well be we need to grow and we're able to but it also might be do you know what when we're not and i think that's okay we said you know you're you're, you're looking through this through this interesting kind of lens on it and and synthesizing your your learning and your experience in the different roles that that you filled there david um and what would you say overall um are the absolute vital key ingredients to to build that successful trust kind of no matter what this what the size really um so I'm, go I'm going to try and avoid just simply telling you the first five chapters of the book the <laughs> but, but, but it is the first five chapters of the book so i think the first one is and i think this is there is a secret to this, but I'll, I'll do it succinctly as i can number one is there have to be a set of values that underpin this um but but it's not enough to have well-crafted values that you put up on a, on a notice board in the reception area of your schools or on your website. They've got to mean something about the way people behave both towards each other and behave between the schools. So I think that's the first part of that. How do you translate the reason why you've created this trust into the values that underpins it? Because um, if, you, if you can really look yourself in the mirror uh, and believe that you're behaving ethically with, with the right values judgments, Problems will still occur, but, but you'll know why and you'll be able to fix them. I think the second one is around um, the role of leadership. And I, and I think I probably do mean the role of the, of the CEO or whoever is in charge of the organization. So much flows from, from that particular post. But um, I think the bit of learning that we're still really tussling within the system is the, the difference between being a head, being an executive head and being a CEO is still not that well understood. Um, uh, in spite of all the work that's been done and, and the work that we do at Ambition Institute is, is, a, is a good example of that, but still we have to talk about it's not just being ahead on speed. You know, it's a very different job. <laughs> so the, the, the role of the CEO and, and how that person builds capacity and builds their teams around them is number two. The third one, I think, is around governance. We've talked a bit about that. But, but you know, you, 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 can have, you can be the best CEO in the world, but if your governance model is flawed, you're going to be, I think, inhibited in terms of delivering your, your, the, the ambition that you have for, for your schools. The fourth one is around school improvement. Um, and, and, and I'll summarize that succinctly again as I can. But it, a school improvement strategy for a trust is not a document that tells you what the schools are doing. Um, it, 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 it's for me, it's predicated on uh, the phrase I've used many times um, and, and some people like it, some people dislike it, but 21,000 schools where we have, they all require improvement. Um, uh, and of course, that's a phrase that's used in the accountability judgment system that also creates, but I, but I genuinely mean it in the true sense of the word. Whoever the best schools are in the country, 
I promise you that within within a day, if I went in them, I'd find the areas of weakness that they've got. The difference is, of course, in an outstanding school is you have enough capacity to fix it quickly. Um, but school improvement in your trust has got to reflect the needs of those kind of schools as well as those that are chaotic. And then I think uh, the final element is um, is the the benefit to the adults of being part of this trust. We've talked a bit about parents, talked a bit about children, but it's also for the adults. Um, and what does it mean to be employed by this trust? And and I see it through two lenses. Really. One is the lens of how you help me be the best professional version of myself I can be. And that's through how you develop me, how you support me, how you create career opportunities for me. Um, and the other is kind of how you look after me um, and how you take care of me as a person so I can be that professional. Um, and one of the bits that I, I really love about the book is we, we, we wrote a case study together about a fictitious young man called Sam. Uh, and Sam, we pick up um, just as he's doing his A-levels. And we track him through a kind of a journey through university in the first 10 years of his career. It's a, it's, he's a fictitious person, but I'm hoping he won't be in the future. Um, that talks about the kind of experiences he had about becoming a great teacher, becoming a leader, getting involved in all sorts of things, which I think probably could only have happened because he was, he was employed in a trust rather than a single school. But if we don't paint that picture and we, and we, and we make that promise to our staff, then fundamentally they won't see the benefits of it. And they'll actually see the, the complicated corporate structure as distraction to what they, what they, what they believe in. Yeah, I think there's, there's two interesting um, things, things there. I think the, your point about the, the sort of the role of the CEO, do you think, you know, as the system matures and, and just more people have seen that, that demonstrated? Because I think part of the issue is a lot of people who become, become CEOs may not have worked under a CEO. Do you think we're still kind of suffering from that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that there, there, there is a really big issue in the system about people who've made it to headship don't want to work for anybody else. You know, that, that is fundamentally one of the really big barriers to why good schools will join multi-academy trusts. And, and it's really difficult, I think, to sugarcoat it because that is what it is, I'm afraid. Uh, it's, it's, down, it's for the trust and for the CEO to sort of talk about the compensationary benefits of that and how, and how being in this organisation is better for you professionally and for your kids than it is to be in, in, in one school. So I think there's an element of that. I think the other element we have is still a really large majority of CEOs and trusts have come through the same route as I did. Um, and therefore, it is quite hard, particularly in a small trust, to not be that lead school improver. And I think the role of CEOs is to develop school improvers, not be the school improver, because your job is to build a strategy and run this complicated organisation. Um, and I think quite a lot of people are still on that journey. And, and again, we, we've described that. We've been very upfront about that. So that's a challenge for the sector. But here are some of the things that, that actually are rewarding by working differently. Um, and, and if there is a sense of loss of not being that hands-on day-to-day leader where you see the kids and the staff every day, and you see them in the lunch queue and you see them on bus duty, there are other ways you can compensate for that. And, and, and unless you feel that there's something in that, then actually that's going to be a difficult journey for people. And we have to, be, we have to accept that. Some of the very best school leaders who've done brilliant jobs in one school have turned out to be not that great when they've been leading multiple schools. I guess it's, it's about also making a kind of a clearer choice for that person and saying maybe that isn't the right career step for me because I want to have that closer link and, and, and connection. Um, what are your yeah. thoughts, Laura? I mean, I, I do wonder with the book, it is quite detailed around a, a lot of strategy, um, a lot of talk of what the academy system is, how it functions. And I, I read it and there's certain parts where I thought, gosh, this is, you know, it's quite tough going understanding this. But if you read the book and you think to yourself, this is too difficult, then you, you may struggle to lead an academy trust. On the other hand, um, one of the things that we do talk about in the book a lot is if you do want to take that challenge on, your ability to transform the lives of not just say 1,000 secondary children or a couple of hundred primary school children, it's much, much bigger. And you get the opportunity to completely transform the careers of teachers within your trust. And David, I can't remember how many teachers it is that you've worked, you've had work for you who are now head teachers. I mean, it's quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, 32. Right. So you don't just go on to, to help many more children. You actually go on to help 32 head teachers who themselves might go on and become CEOs. So for those who are motivated to do it, I think it is an extraordinarily difficult thing, but there are a lot, a lot of rewards to it as well. And, I like and we need these people. We do. Because <laughs> there are trusts and we've got to get the leaders from somewhere. That was the other reason 
to write the book. You know, someone's got to be talk, telling this story because otherwise you end up with lots of people trying to amble their way through something that no one's done before. And I, I think the sort of the human element really shines through when as you, you're right, as you say, you are, you know, part of being the role is you are impacting the lives of, of you know, children you will not meet one to one necessarily and have that relationship with that you would do in a school context. But that doesn't mean that you're just kind of walking by people and, and you know, treating them as if they were robots. You know, there, there are stories of, of the individuals and the importance of everybody in, in that trust. I really like the example that you pick out about, you know, doing consultation with all staff um, mentioned at um, Maritime um, uh, Trust there where, you know, the, the, the lunchtime supervisor's opinion is important. And, you know, in your role as a CEO, being in those schools and talking to those people and the interactions you have with them will be much more valuable because you're doing it across so many other people in so many other places. Um, and I think, it, yeah, it's trying to, to balance those, those, those two things out um, constantly. And on the point as, as sort of trusts as, as employers, I think it, 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 for people who are going into teaching, and maybe have less experience of HR, or um, you know the, the the processes around choosing a a company to work for or an organisation to work for, and, and thinking through it in, in those ways. Do you think that uh, the trust the trust movement and more trusts thinking in this way about how do I become the employer of choice? How do I lay out what it is like to 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 work and lead and develop in this in this trust? will bring about um, a change in kind of working conditions and, and, and sort of job opportunities for, for teachers. I certainly hope so. Um, and, and, but I, but I, but I, yes, I do with the answer to your question. I think it's one of those areas where I think this is a slightly easier territory to share good practice in. I think there's a lot more openness across the sector about what works in this space and does and some of the things that, that haven't worked. Um, but also from the other side of it, you know, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of, uh, young teachers, maybe, maybe people who've already been teaching for five or six years, who who only ever experienced working in a market of trust. Uh, they they came in there 2015, 2016, let's say, and they're still there, or they're, or they're another academy in another trust. And so, the the trust that doesn't doesn't recognise their responsibility as a great employer will have the biggest retention and recruitment challenges, because the trust in the in the community that does get it um, will will be seen as having an advantage, and and, and rightly so, because if, if the only way that you can develop your career and your CPD opportunities, even in a map now, not, not in a standalone school, but even in a trust, are what your head of your local site can give you, you're going to see very, very quickly when you have your next inset day with other schools that you're the poor relation on this. Mm. And so there's an element of kind of almost internal competition around this. And, and I think the expectation that people have that they will have opportunities to to look at practice in other schools, to even have secondments to other schools, to train alongside people doing the same role as them in other schools. I mean, again, if I think about, um, I don't think we put this specific example in the book, but you know, back back in the Cabot days, the, the, the subject in secondary schools, when there was just a secondary trust, that we used to talk about all the time was RE, because um, the four secondary schools between them had something like four and a half RE, full-time equivalent RE teachers, what the hell did they do on a trust conference day or a staff inset day? Mm. What they did was they got told to go to the humanities faculty and half the conversation, if not more, was completely irrelevant to them. But the moment you start thinking at that scale, those subjects that are, by definition, going to be made up of small numbers, music's another example, my own subject, you suddenly build a, um, a capacity and a collaboration around maybe a dozen of those specialists. Um, and that enables professional development to happen in a very different way to how it would happen in a single setting. So I think that issue about your responsibility as an employer, not just in terms of, um, of what opportunities you give people, but also how you employ them, because one of the other areas of evolution that we've seen, and I still think it's got a bit of a journey to go, is the degree of equitability that there is across a trust. So if you've come in from one local authority in your school, and I've come into the trust from another local authority, all of those terms and conditions and contracts and pay structures probably are different on day one. And the trust has got to find a way to, to harmonize and equalize that. Otherwise, people will see very quickly that people doing almost an identical job in two different schools are being treated very differently. And these are things that you have to wrestle with, but they're good things to wrestle with because ultimately they make you a great employer. One of the things I do worry about a little bit 
is what's going to happen if we end up in a situation where there are some academy trusts that are very big and we've already got this. And then there are many in that middle phase or quite small middle, maybe four to six schools. And they really struggle to pull together the CPD offering or the onward training. And actually it can then be quite difficult if a local school is taken over by a, what would be considered a big shiny academy trust that's really got its stuff together and has a big onboarding process for newly qualified teachers. Is that going to make it more difficult for those smaller academy trusts? Luckily, we've talked in the book again about things like teaching school alliances. So I don't think schools are completely on their own. We're starting to see maps working together. So there's nothing to stop two small maps also collaborating on these kinds of things. And I think that innovation will come. But I, I am always slightly nervous of what happens when you end up with very big academy trusts and lots of economies of scale versus smaller ones. And, and I think it also sort of tracks back to the, the identity of those trusts and can people see clearly enough and make clear enough choices about you know where they're sending their child or where they're working based on the kind of outward communication of, of that um, uh, from, the, from the trusts themselves. Um, who else? Um, so thinking about uh, how we've talked a little bit about school improvement there, and thinking about trust on this on this journey to, to, to be successful and avoid failure, how can they develop really meaningful metrics and kind of another bit of business language, kind of your key performance indicators to review their performance as as they go? I think that's a, it's a it's a very fair question, I think, and I, and I don't think the answer is just the national metrics. So we we know what they are. I'm going to I'm not going to answer you with those. I'm going to park those for the moment because I think there are other ones there, um, and some of these are probably a bit ambitious, and I suspect won't ever happen. But I'm going to tell you what they are because there's nothing to stop the trust doing them. That's the point. Just because it's not conceived in a national framework doesn't mean that the trust can't use these, these metrics. So I, I was asked this question uh, at an IOE panel that I sat on. You know, if I if I could change one thing in the accountability system, what it would what would it be? And um, and and the, and the answer I gave was that I wish we could find a way to judge the quality of education by the time school leavers reach the age of twenty five, because in many respects, um, in many respects, the, the the product and the output of that education is going to be felt by then, and hopefully before, but certainly by that point in terms of. What are the 10 years being like since you did your GCSEs? Um, and and I, I, we talk in the book about it, and I, and, I, and I use it a lot in my other work, about trusts, particularly the ones that Laura just described, the really large ones. There's nothing to stop from creating an alumni network to be able to track and trace where, where young people have gone to, the kind of employment they're in, the experiences they had, um, and, and for them to, to, to maybe keep a connection with the, with the trust that educated them. Uh, for for that part of their adult lives, so that would be one. I think the second one would be um, around retention rates, because retention rates are a good proxy indicator of what it's like to be employed by you. Um, and and there, and there'll be some occasions where you develop people and they choose and are promoted into another organisation. Um, that's that's a good story for the system. That's not a negative. But where you see people leaving because they're just disappointed with, with what's happened, I think that's quite revealing. And that would be my second one. And the third one is probably part of the national metrics. It's kind of conceived around the map performance tables. But the map performance tables tend to aggregate up the performance of all the children in the trust. I'm more interested in what the range is between the best and the worst performing school in the trust. Because when you have a when you have an average set of metrics, it doesn't tell you what that is. Because if you look at the trust and your the school that joined you because they were outstanding is still outstanding, you could argue that your input as a trust is being quite minimal to that the school that joined you below floor in special measures and is now still below floor and scraping ri you could argue you should have had more of an impact around there so i would be interested in the metric that the boards considered which 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 measured the gap between their highest performing school and the weakest but also then had a weight around when they joined and how long they've been in trust so i think something that, that does that is interesting because I, I worry about the volatility of school performance where if you have a really good cohort one year your results fly um, where actually what you want to see is the following year when the cohort is less academically strong, the results get even better. That for me is an indication of a trust that's got the finger on the pulse of school improvement. And Laura, some thoughts on that? Um, I, one of the things we've also talked about is looking at, at staff metrics as well. So everyone gets very focused on the children, but 
think simple things such as staff absence rates can make an enormous difference to people outcomes in the end because in the, you know if, if staff are having to run around and cover other teachers if you've got lots of gaps also is it telling us something about why those teachers have gone off sick you know what's what's going on there that's a really simple metric to look at and it often just gets overlooked and missed it's also very expensive of course to do cover so yeah. there is a financial bit to it but i think some of those simple metrics which we do talk about in the book as well are, are really important yeah, I really like that idea um, that you mentioned there, David, of, of, of tracking the children uh, beyond education. I speak as a frustrated primary school governor and we're always desperate to know what happen, be, happens beyond year six and we've never really adequately managed to, to find that out. Um, but I think it is a good, good way to think, especially at a, as a governor and, and trustee level about you know the the end result of the of the work you're doing um and and what happens beyond there's there's a very simple policy piece around that which is if you if you made children's urn number in school with their national insurance number you'd be able to track them for a lot longer than 25 but i, I suspect there are all sorts of barriers well we couldn't do that <laughs> yeah they have done that so oh. the data is there now so the department yeah. for education now tracks if you're you're a little bit younger than me so probably kind of uh 35 ish then the, the government will have the data on you from your URNs. They know what GCSEs, and in fact, they've been linking it to whether you went to university, what subjects you studied, and your um, your employment data. So this okay. is all part of the LEO, and they've done it very clearly for university subjects, and this is how they now get tables for which subjects mean that you earn what okay. in a few years' time. My understanding is that there is you know, someone somewhere within government probably knows which GCSE subjects make a difference to your outcome. So I'm always a bit surprised that that hasn't come out. The question would be whether you could give it back to the schools and that's probably really, really tricky to do, but we can know this stuff as a nation. It's just a case of us doing it. Oh. Wow, is it? So there you go, Caroline, you need to get your governors writing letters yeah. to the government saying, we want to know what happened to our primary school kids. How yeah. are they earning now? We love to write letters. Uh, <laughs> I won't even tell you about all the things we love to write letters on. Um, but yeah, that, that is a fascinating uh, piece of information. Thank you for it. Uh, I wanted to think about a little bit about the, the role of um, kind of the DfE, I guess, and, and government uh, in this, David, obviously you've had the experience of being a regional and national school commissioner. Do you think you had the requisite information and tools in that role to prevent some of these issues with within academies? And you know, we've, we've spoken as well about are there enough effective ways to, to share what works? But I'd be interested in your kind of reflections on that. So I think I think the, the the answer to that question is probably no, we didn't, because the 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 role of RSEs was to address those issues once they'd happened, um, and one of the reasons why I spent such a lot of my time trying to conceive of the NSE job of being out talking to people, whether that was visiting schools and trusts or doing conferences or writing blogs, was to try to get ahead of that curve and. And, and do a bit of what was the stuff we've done in the book, which is to say, well, this is what I think works. This is this is some of the practice that seems to be making a difference. And then by definition, don't do some of the other stuff. Um, but but I, I I think that's that's the challenge about being in government. I, I think you're you're not in the kind of role where you can once you've approved the trust reform, you can't then tell them what to do. You 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 can only talk about your expectations, what should be in place. And I think the RSEs have definitely improved. Um, over the years in terms of being much more uh, much more driven by the detail of what your governance structure looks like. How are you going to improve these schools? We're not going to give you any more schools unless you can prove the other schools are not going to be disadvantaged. And I think those conversations have happened a great deal. I think in the early days, my, certainly my experience in 2014, of the, of the nine of us, including Frank Green, who was the commissioner at that time, um, eight of the nine had been school leaders. And in my case, I've been a trust leader. Um, and, and whilst that that journey into the into the DFE as a senior civil servant in the sector wasn't an easy one uh, to take, um, nevertheless the the insight that those people's experience had made, meant that we you know we had what I would call a bullshit bullshit indicator, which actually if they start if they start telling us this, which actually we never worked in the schools, you'd be blown away by, 
we know what to ask you about that to prove it. Mm. And I think that was incredibly useful at the time. Um, and having had teacher boards as well of people that were, that were really experienced leaders meant that actually I think the quality of the oversight was good. But to your question about could we have got ahead of that, I think it's almost impossible to do that and it probably still is. Um, and I, I remember, I think it was Lucy Powell on the select committee or one of the select committee appearances said, you know, after one of the one of the very high profile failures, she said, is that it then? Is that the end of failures? I said, well, no, it can't be. You can't you can't predict that. All, all you can do is we need to we need to get the message out there about what works and what doesn't work. And we need to challenge failure when it comes. But no, you can't predict it. Because it you can't say it'll be the end of that. And so I doubt very much if the DFE are even even more capable of getting ahead of that curve. They're probably, I should think by now, because it was beginning, it was work that we were beginning to look at before I left two years ago, was looking at the the kind of indicators of what those failures might mean, whether it was um, financial notices to improve or rapid turnover of heads and all those kind of things. Um, but those things on their own don't necessarily mean that things are going to fall over. It, it just means it's happened and people will do something about it and fix it. Um, but I think certainly in, in the five years that I was there, you know, we, we were constantly trying to make sure that the trust we were concerned about, we were spending a lot of time with. There was two things that um, used to strike us, I think, at Schools Week around some of this, which is that um, the contracts that schools are funded under, the funding agreements, were written often in 2010. They were written without knowledge of where the system was going, and they were fairly um, flimsy a lot of the time. They also say that schools have essentially got a rolling right to continue with their trust for seven years unless certain interventions are put in place. And it wasn't clear what those interventions were. So the regional schools commissioners, especially at the beginning, were, were dealing with a kind of contractual matter, but without proper contracts. And no one really wanted to make it contractual because within education, we don't tend to see that as the way forwards. So it was, it was hard, I think, for anyone in that position to try and bridge the gap between what is essentially the government saying, we give you a contract to run this school and we're gonna take it off you if you don't do things, without wanting to ever discuss the contract. And the second issue, which no one has really got a handle on in the system, including the school leaders or the government, is the buildings issue. Because of PFIs and the way that the schools were funded throughout the kind of late 90s and 2000s, there were just a set of complicated funding, building, contractual issues that almost no one can solve. And you end up with certain schools that are failing for various complicated reasons, but they don't have the budget to turn themselves around. You can pump money in, but it ends up going into the buildings and nobody has the ability to get out of those building contracts or to change the buildings around in ways that would improve the school. So I, I agree. I think there's never going to be a situation where there's no failures because a lot of it is just humans. We're all humans. Mistakes will be made, um, even by us on occasion. And but I think if you could do something more around looking at the funding agreements, making that clearer and tackling head on some government someday, this PFI issue, there are a, a glut of schools that would suddenly be in a much better position. Yeah, PFI is a very, very tricky problem. But, um, it, it's it's also causing the problem in which um, it's very difficult for some multi-academy trusts who are desperate to take over certain schools. They simply can't do it because it will put their own finances at risk to take on board the liabilities of those schools. And that's when you start to get into very, very difficult territory. It's not that anybody in the system doesn't want to help these schools. It's whether or not you're being put in a position where you literally could do that. Yeah, and I think I wonder if there's if there's more that can be done at that that due diligence phase. I don't know. That's... There, there are two. There are two things. The due diligence phase is a really good point. There are two things that I think are under, often overlooked um, because a lot of the emphasis is is rightly placed upon buildings, finance, contracts, things like that. But the two things that uh, I, I think a lot of trust miss is what I call the the compatibility element of it. So you really want this school to come because they're a good school and they'll make your results look good, but they are not going to play and they are going to be a constant cultural thorn in your side. Um, and so finding some compatibility tests to find out whether they can align to your culture is number one. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm often, and was in, in, in my previous role, really amazed at how, how loose some of the school performance analysis was. And it was nearly, you know, it was always Ofsted inspections. It was the most recent set of results. That isn't school improvement. That's the output of school performance. Um, 
And we needed to see, and probably still do, more people looking at the real issue about the curriculum, how it's assessed, um, student attendance. Laura's excellent point about staff attendance. These are the kind of indicators that give you some idea of the scale of the challenge that you're taking on. And because a school that's just given a single singular offset judgment and say requiring improvement, okay, we, we can guess what's in it, but actually it doesn't tell you whether the school is on their way up from special measures or on the way down to special measures. And you've got to really, I think, ex expose that as part of that process. And I really like in the when you're talking about governance in the book, you, you give this example around uh, if an outstanding school um, sort of says, well, we're going to keep we're going to keep doing things this way. And this is how we're going to organize our governance and our, 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 how we want to delegate responsibility. And you bend to suit them. <laughs> you're just going to be in a whole heap of trouble. You know, you oh, actually big, just really need to make point. it clear from the start. And, and, and they've got to be brave enough to say no then in, in, mm. in, in that case. And, and, I, and there are there are a number of trustees uh, who've exactly done that, you know, not because I've told them to, but they've, they've come back and do themselves because they recognise that they spent five or six years building the culture for the organisation where they have got a delegated scheme that everyone buys into. And all of a sudden, the new kid on the block does their own thing. You really have a, you have a meltdown waiting to happen. Yeah, uh, indeed. And and finally, towards the uh, the end of the book, uh, you obviously reflecting on on the, the the COVID period and thinking towards the future for Academy Trusts. What would you say to to both of you are your kind of predictions for the future of trusts? So I really enjoyed writing that last chapter. Um, it was it was it was really good fun to do, and it was kind of the bit where I was I felt like I had I had a more of a blank page than I had because some of the other stuff is quite factual and it's quite content driven whereas I think this was a real opportunity to, to think differently and it coincided in April when I wrote it um, we'd, we'd been in lockdown for about three weeks then so it was very very real and and even now two or three months later even some of the things that we wrote there are the world has gone quickly in some respects and slowly in others so I think there is a there is a whole thing about a post-covid or a, or a, or a, a lesser pan pandemic culture which was will give trusts, I think, the opportunity to demonstrate that um, that they can they can support schools in a different way. And I, and I see a lot of examples now where schools who would have had no truck with the thought of joining a trust before March the 23rd have now seen the help they've been given or they've seen other schools coping better. And I think that, that conversation is shifting. Um, I, I think we'll see a growth in academization in the next couple of years as a result of that, and I don't think it'll need a minister to force it. In fact, the minister probably should take a step back from it and find a way to, to facilitate it and make it happen quicker. But I think those conversations are happening at a local level already. So I think I think where trusts are in a position and they're able to grow, I think that's a, that, that, that will be possibly one way forward. The other two, I think, are, are nothing to do with COVID, and it's that, that quest that we talked about already today about how do you build this sense of a single organisation? I still think although we've talked about it a lot in the book and I'm very clear in my head what it looks like, I still don't think that's the majority of, of trusts and I think there's more to be done there. And the bit that we haven't really talked about today, but I think is implicit in a lot of it, is a much tighter alignment about how things are done in trusts. Um, and I think curriculum design, assessment, um, training, you'll see, you'll see a, much, uh, a much greater willingness, I think, to set strategy that looks more standardised across a group of schools than... That the, the thousand flowers bloom, which, which although you know I come across as being critical of that, I'm not. It was just an inevitability of a new model. It's what it's all we knew back in 2010, um, and now trusts are trying to retrofit the model that they've learned about that they think is more appropriate, um, and that's a big change management exercise, which which always is acts as a reminder that the the trust movement is still quite young, um, but it's not so young that we can't say there are things that they should do better. Yeah, and as, and as you said at the beginning there, that sort of em emphasis on autonomy, sending everybody off in lots of different directions without a model of what good looks like. And and now, as you say, a, a, a more mature system and more of a feel for what that good looks like um, will will lead to maybe more standardisation. And, and what are your thoughts, Laura? So I agree with David in the sense of in the schools, I think we will start to see a bit broader understanding of what the Academy Trusts are trying to do and essentially um, 
as you say, more standardization, at least as an initial phase, and then it, it, it becoming much more nuanced as people get used to it. One thing I'm sort of paying more attention to, and this is always my way, is the current government. And it's interesting, of course, that in number 10 at the moment, you've got Boris Johnson, very closely guided by Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings. And Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings were the initial architects of the free school movement and the broader academy system. It started under New Labour, but it really came into its own under Michael Gove's uh, leadership. Because of that, I think we have to keep a little bit of an eye on what they might mean for what's going forwards. They were always very big on the thousand flowers bloom and the innovation. There is very much a feel of getting rid of bureaucracy. So what might that mean in a post-COVID plus Gove and Cummings world? Well, if you think that some parents have actually quite enjoyed the homeschooling period, I think a lot have found it very difficult, but you would only need a small percentage to want to change their way of life, to work from home, to want more flexibility from their schooling for there to need to be more innovation in schools to allow that to happen. I think we're also seeing more teachers wanting flexibility in their lives. And I think there's a new almost deal with parents. Up until a few months ago, the deal was you kind of drop your kids off and you know we'll take care of Kate with you, but this is what we do. Um, and now, of course, schools sort of had to, because they were forced to step back for a few months um, from being open. And that meant parents had to take on new roles. And where that's flourished, where they've developed a good relationship with their child, they might want it to continue. So I wonder if there might be more room for innovation and new types of schools to open up, new types of academy trusts that are either more hybrid, doing online, um, entirely online or online part of the week, open part of the week. Is that something that multi-academy trusts themselves might like to offer? And what would that mean for a certain group of, um, of young people? It's quite out there, yeah. but they did try and do this sort of stuff. They were looking at virtual schools back in 2010 and 2011. So could that be something that happens in the next few years is a new form of experimentation? Maybe. Will there be some spectacular failures and we'll, <laughs> we won't learn some lessons? Probably. But, you know, there does need to be always within the system some new people coming through because otherwise you won't get those new innovative leaders. You won't get the progress that came when federations happened, CTCs happened, academies happened, which we talk about in the book. So I'm sort of panicked that stuff will go wrong because that's always my way. But at the same time, aware of the fact that we've now got a lot of knowledge, we can make it better. And there could be really positive things that come out of it as well for those young people, for the parents and the schools that are able to forge new relationships. Indeed, some, some really interesting thoughts there. I feel like we should reconvene in five years time and and see what's happened. And any final words for, for, our, for our listeners out there from either of you? So this has been a real pleasure, Caroline. Thank you for giving us a chance to talk about it. I mean, I, I, I'll just go back to where we started from. The, the, this book is not a book of memoirs or a biography. This, this was uh, a cathartic experience, which Dora shared with me to, to describe the journey that I've been on for the last 30 odd years in education having gone from school to university and then back to school again and been there ever since virtually. Um, and having had the privilege of seeing so many different uh, schools and trusts and leaders operate, um, I wanted to write a book that would celebrate some of that, but would also make it very clear that if we're going to build upon this, we, we have lessons to learn um, and there are things that we can improve upon um, because the education system just doesn't stay static. It continues to evolve. And you know, Laura's answer to your last question is, fabulous answer and who knows maybe that will will happen or maybe half of that will happen but we absolutely need people who want to lead trusts who want to play a role in collaborative landscapes um, and i hope that the book will open people's eyes to the potential of that yeah and and, and likewise i mean i think whenever writing a book you, it's quite a big endeavor and you do it because you think people will learn something and i know from sitting with david and, and hearing so much of his story and hearing his wisdom over the last couple of years i know how much i learned and if people went away with only 30% of that, then it would be absolutely worth the time to have read the book. I think there is nobody else in the system who's got the same knowledge that he's got. And if you want to be running an academy trust, then this is this is the person you need to be learning from. So I'm really proud to have written the book and hope lots of other people will learn from it too. Well, if hopefully if this podcast has done nothing else, it's encouraged you to go out, buy and read the book. 
And thank you so much to Sir David Carter and Laura McInerney for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.